If you're a regular listener to the Van City podcast and believe in what the church is doing, consider supporting Van City financially. Full disclosure, our church is small and in the throes of an ongoing struggle to make budget and to grow in the spiritual discipline of generosity. If you want to help out, visit vancity.church/give. I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part four in the series, James, Forgetting Your Own Face. Knowing the truth, James argues, and not acting on it, not living according to it, is like looking in a mirror, beholding reality, and then walking away and immediately forgetting what you saw. All of us have gaps in our discipleship, gaps between what we think we believe and how we conduct our lives. What are yours? Once, a woman who had been married for many years beheld her face in a mirror in the golden haze of a dawn, not unlike hundreds before it, thousands before it. And she admitted something to herself then, something she'd known for several years but not allowed herself to fully consider, that her marriage had become loveless, wrote. And she thought then of the early days of her and her husband's romance, the electricity and a single touch, and she wondered how long it had been since she had felt something like that. And she remembered stories from other couples who had survived their long lives together, the way they said infatuation, if you allow it, can mature and become abiding faithfulness. But hers had only become an empty routine, a roommate for whom she felt very little at all. And she thought of her own role in it, the affection she'd withheld. She thought of the mistakes that he had made over the years, the distance that yawned open between them. And she wondered these things in the mirror that morning and then turned and walked away. Open your Bibles to the book of James in the New Testament. We are in a summer-long journey through one first century letter authored by a man actually named Jacob, but that we often call James in English, who led the first Christian community in Jerusalem some 2,000 years ago. Lots of ground to cover tonight, so let's get right to it. You guys all right? You with me? Great, thank you. James chapter one, beginning with verse 12, we read, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. And then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Now, We're dissecting this letter in pieces, usually a a small piece at a time and stretched out across several weeks. So it's easy to assume that each weekly section, in our case, is its own unique unit of thought, but it isn't. So to backtrack, James, the letter anyway, began with suffering. Then it shifted to the power of corrupting wealth. Now he's suddenly on about trials and testing and temptation and... Desire. 
I could have said something like tribulation or tragedy or some such thing, but no, because alliteration is dorky. <laughs> Pastors really need to put that game down, man. Every one of them out here acting like they're the first to that idea too. In fact, a while back, I thought of this while I was writing the teaching, uh, and I want you to know I was not tempted to alliterate. I just noticed that it could be there. A friend of mine found this on a, a Christian website somewhere. I have no idea who it is, so I don't know who I'm poking fun at. So you've got the distinctives are monastic, multicultural, emotionally healthy, marriage to Christ and missional, the five M's. Mental health was right there for the taking. Why emotionally? Whatever. Why? Why the alliteration? Anyway. Yeah. You, oh, you like it. Levi likes it. Do not do that up here. <laughs> My point is that Jacob, the author of this letter, he's carrying on the same themes that he began from the outset of the letter. He's writing to a people who are facing poverty. They're suffering because of it, something with which James or Jacob was well acquainted. So he uses something called a makerism or a beatitude, which is this pronouncement of blessing. And it utilizes the same counterintuitive inversion famously exemplified by the beatitudes of Jesus. The idea is that the very people who don't have a certain thing are promised that the thing that their circumstances seem to make impossible will be theirs, for better or for worse. So the mourners will have comfort, for example, but the rich are going to be made poor, that sort of thing, upside down. Here, the suffering party, the impoverished in this case, will be blessed. They will receive the crown of life. Now, don't think televangelist, golden crown, kind of kingly crown. Jacob is likely referring to crown-shaped laurels awarded at competitions in the ancient world. It's a, it's a word picture. And even then, the crown symbolizes the kingdom of God and what Jesus called life to the fullest. So it's not a crown at all, but it represents more life, abundance, being completed, mature, brought to maturation and completion in the name of Jesus. But it's conditional, and here's where James loses us in the weeds. See, we read that line, having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life. And we imagine a test engineered by God during which, you know, God stands as a passive observer dangling a reward only given upon completion of this test that he architectured. In this case, the reward is just relief from suffering. Or we think, okay, life got hard. God is testing me. I better bear up under the weight of it all so that I can get you know, at the prize that's at the bottom of this awful box of cereal. No, in James' mind, the endurance of suffering itself can, if we do so with the wisdom of God that God freely gives, make us better people, more mature, more complete. And then we will thus have more life in the language of Jesus. Scott McKnight says, God's blessing is not in material abundance or money, wealth, possessions, but in an inner confidence that God will bring to fruition his promises and kingdom and in a morally formed character and community. So poverty, James concedes, is painful. He knows that full well. But enduring the hardships of want without compromising one's integrity in the pursuit of corrupting wealth, can become its own reward. In other words, you get better for it. You get more mature. You become more at peace. 
There's actually similar wisdom from the great prophet Arnold Schwarzenegger, who's the, I didn't mean that as a joke at all. He's the, the patron saint of fitness. Um, in his uh, book, Encyclopedia of Modern Bodybuilding, Arnold argues that bodybuilding requires radical discipline, but it also creates radical discipline. So by exercising the necessary structure and self-denial to even begin bodybuilding in the first place, one inevitably learns new mastery over themselves in the process. So you're already working out. You might as well get up a little bit earlier so you can do more of it. And now that you've done that, you might as well adjust your diet so that the working out wasn't completely pointless and on down the list. You have to go without wealth when you're poor. These people are already poor. But in being poor, you learn to go without wealth. And this is, James, the Hebrew Scriptures, Paul, and Jesus all argue, this is crucial for discipleship, for maturity, and for freedom. Rich people can learn simplicity and contentment and radical generosity, but, Jesus argued, it's almost impossible. It's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle he said. In fact, it should be completely impossible, but for the goodness and mercy of God who makes impossible things possible. Now, James is making this important distinction. Yes, he does call trials and suffering tests, but the test is not God tempting the sufferer. In fact, those are actually two distinct phenomena. Yes, one can be tested in suffering, and yes, you can be tempted in suffering, but the two are not the same thing. But it would feel a lot simpler if we just folded the two together, so that's what we tend to do. Life's trials are themselves God luring us toward an improper response just to see what we'll do, like we're lab rats. And James says, look, the test is an opportunity for spiritual maturity. God is not setting a trap for you. God doesn't design your suffering at all, and he doesn't tempt anyone. And remember, in context, the letter's audience was facing the trial of poverty and a severe famine that had broken out. So Jacob, the author of James, likely has in mind the temptation to respond sinfully to those particular trials, which would be things like vengeance against the wealthy or violent revolt against the upper class or violence at all or gossip or slander or animosity or bitterness or hatred. Now, I've lived around or under the poverty line for my entire adult life, and I've had lots of friends in similar positions, especially if they work at Van City. And believe me, this can be an insidious, satanic temptation when people with very little come together and then slander those who have a lot. But it's not exclusive to those with small paychecks. Just this week, I was with a friend who makes more than double what I make, maybe more than that. And though they know this very well, that didn't stop them from ranting about a coworker who makes a little more than they do. The human desire for a little bit more and then bitterness or slander or to have what someone else has conceives temptation, and that gives birth to sin. And when sin is full-grown in the language of Scripture, it gives birth to death. So here's the trade-off. You can endure the test and become more fully realized in the life that is truly life, or you can allow desire to succumb to that temptation and then sin, which leads to death. 
But God doesn't have anything to do with the tempting or the sinning or the death. And James will press that point in chapter 1, verse 16. Look down and let's read, don't be deceived, dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. So there's the explicit distinction. God does not tempt. He does not ordain suffering or sin or evil. Only what is good comes from God. God is trustworthy. He's not fickle. He is knowable in his goodness. He's not shrouded in darkness. He's not aloof. He's not capricious. And while sin gives birth to death, God gives new birth through his unchanging truth. He is not the one who kills us. He is the one who gives us life. And the proof, Jacob argues, is in the existence of the Christian movement at all. And this is incredible to me. We, American churchgoers, that is, survivors of evangelicalism, we go around apologizing for Christianity all the time. I'm not like them we say. And look, I get it. In our context, Christian doesn't always mean Christian, if you know what I mean. Terrible things have been done and are being done in the name of Christianity. And some of us, we're justifiably concerned with common misconceptions about what it means to be a Christian. Is a Christian a Republican or a conservative or a right-wing conspiracy cultist or a nationalist or a gun nut? Or is a Christian a progressive or a liberal or a militant cancel culture comrade, a virtue-signaling pride flag Instagram activist? What do you mean when you say, I'm a Christian or a Jesus follower or however you decide to put it? And why does James believe that the messianic community, what we call the church, men and women and children who believe in Jesus as Messiah, King, and more than that, the Lord over all, how in the world does that itself act as a kind of proof of God's trustworthiness and goodness? It isn't because he believes discipleship to Jesus is a fast track to comfort or security or prosperity. He's writing to poor people, and he opened his letter with the inevitability of suffering and the potential benefits of suffering. So that isn't it. And it isn't because he believes Christians as people are above reproach because he also opens his letter correcting bad behavior and bad theology. So when Jacob, the author of the letter we call James, argues that the messianic community, the church, Christianity itself, is somehow an indication of God's goodness, that God is trustworthy, if he doesn't mean that Christianity is your best life now, and if he doesn't mean that Christians are awesome people, what's the point? Look at it this way. I'm going to use for an example my friend Matt. I have a friend named Matt. Matt Hughes. Dependability is a really big value of mine personally. Faithfulness, follow through. I have got a razor thin tolerance for flakiness or bailing out or not showing up. And part of the whole integrity wheelhouse in my own personal economy of values is punctuality. Being on time, to me personally, demonstrates tremendous consideration for other people, while lack of punctuality, to me, does exactly the opposite. So, Enter my friend Matt, Matt Hughes. This dude is always on time. 
He's either early or right on the money. In fact, I don't know how he does the perfect timing thing. It might be a trick. He's like waiting around the corner or something. But, and maybe in my parents' generation, that was more of a given that people showed up for things on time. But with folks my age and younger, that is no small thing. Even so, it's really easy to overlook because Matt doesn't show up to appointments and hangouts with his hands up, cheering for himself, tapping his watch. I did it again, right on time. Doesn't mention it at all. He just walks through my front door, actually, without knocking, and then usually heads straight to the kitchen and starts making himself tea and food. But behind the scenes, this means that whatever is going on in Matt's day, his schedule, his work, traffic between Portland and Vancouver, family stuff, Matt is quietly accounting for all those things, addressing all these things so that he can be where he was expected to be when he's expected to be there for the sake of the people expecting him. He is putting others above himself. That's what punctuality does. And think about time is that it's actually the same for everyone. I don't know if you knew that. And I've been saying this for years, how you do and do not spend your time is entirely up to you. I've always said that I think that we should swap the popular expression, I didn't have time for that, for the more accurate, I chose not to spend my time on that. And sure, there are valid reasons for being late once in a while. And and when there's relational equity, we give one another grace, of course. But my friend Matt is over there working things out behind the scenes. He's got a full-time job, family of five, serves at his church, lives far away. But if we said we're meeting at 8 p.m., then you better believe he will be there at 8 p.m. or earlier, usually earlier. So much so, in fact, that just last week, I believe it was, it was uh, Dungeons and Dragons night at my house. So that's right, whistle, wow. My kids uh, saw Abby and I setting the table, you know, with the candles and everything. <laughs> and... Uh, and they said, oh, is it D&D night? They, we play after they go to sleep, but they know that that's what goes on. They can hear us in the other room screaming and laughing. So we told them, yeah, yeah, it's D&D night. And they said, when's it supposed to start? And we were like, oh, about 15, 20 minutes. And then without saying anything, Beck and Isla went to the living room window and watched the street. This is a true story. And I walked out there and I said, what are you guys doing? They said, watching for Matt. And sure enough, here comes Matt. How did they know that? Because he is always on time. He does what he says he would do. And Matt would tell you that he's far from perfect. And our relationship, which now at this point spans, uh, you know, a decade, has seen the ups and downs that any meaningful relationship knows well enough. But how did they know that he would get there early or on time? Because he always does. For centuries, the Hebrew people had been banking on God's promise to somehow save his people to send Messiah, to redeem Israel. For hundreds and hundreds of years, Israel had been leaning on, meditating on, telling one another again and again the promise that began in Genesis and then was given to Abraham and Moses and David. And with every reason imaginable not to do it, God fulfilled his promise. And more than that, he sent Messiah to do more than just reestablish Jewish reign in Jerusalem, but to rescue the entire world, creation itself, from the dominion of darkness, to storm and dismantle the gates of hell, to conquer sin and death, and to usher in the everlasting kingdom of God. Is God inconsistent? Is he the one making things hard on us? No, absolutely ridiculous. He is the only one coming through for us. He is the only reason that we're here at all. So knowing that, we should, in theory, be different. 
Thus, he wraps up the chapter this way. Dear brothers and sisters, in verse 19, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Now again, context. This is an impoverished community facing oppression from the Roman Empire, famine, there's little to eat. The temptation amongst some in the Messianic community was to rise up in violent revolt against the rich and powerful, against the oppressors. And that is a sentiment that is alive and well today, if not you know, ideal, if not violently, outwardly, physically, then ideologically. And James says, look, you're angry, okay? But human anger is not the same thing as God's anger because human anger is often selfish. It's about me getting what's coming to me. It's about me getting what I think I deserve. And even when human anger isn't selfish, it tends to express itself in ways inconsistent with the mercy and goodness of God. So he tells them, look, be better at listening than talking. That's huge. He says, learn peace. Because James is, like his brother Jesus, like Peter, like Paul, like all of the early church, decidedly nonviolent. And that kind of desire for more, the embittered heart that's fixed on anger and how come I'm not getting what I deserve, how come someone else has more than me, that violence, all of that is moral filth in Jacob's language. And it entangles the soul and eventually destroys the disciple. It leads to, in his language, death. Get rid of it, he says. And then in verse 22, Here is what may well be the linchpin idea of the entire letter we call James. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they've heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Now, the NIV translates verse 23 to say, someone who looks at his face in a mirror, but there's actually a missing word there. If you have an ESV, for example, you can look down and you'll notice that it translates the verse, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. That word natural comes from the Greek word genesis, which is a word that refers to the true origin or birth of a person or thing. So scholars argue that James is really saying that the person who hears the word but does not listen is like the one who sees what God has made him or her to be, the imago Dei, but does not let the imago Dei shape his or her life. And more than that, To behold one's natural face, one's genesis, also implies those sad and broken beginnings of all human beings born into a world fractured by sin and death. One who sees his or her moral condition in a mirror and walks away without changing. Jacob wants disciples of Jesus to not hear only, 
but to obey what he calls the perfect law that gives freedom, which is the Hebrew scriptures, the law of Moses, as interpreted in light of his brother Jesus, which is love God, love your neighbor as yourself, and everything that Jesus taught as an interpretation of that law. How do you do that? Verse 26, those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves. Their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. That's it. Here's the scholarly summary. To be a hearer and doer in context is to be the person who persevered into moral formation, who seeks God's wisdom in trials, who knows that the poor will be exalted and the rich rendered powerless, who avoids impulses toward violence to establish God's will, who pursues God's justice in meekness and receptivity, and who is shaped in the context of God's messianic community. Many years ago, one summer afternoon in Alabama, someone I knew, a young lady who, when not away at school, lived with her mom and dad, walked into her dad's home office to use the computer. In the story I was told, her dad's email was open, and this young lady gave in to temptation and decided to rifle through the messages a bit. Most of it was probably boring, as most inboxes are, but the process of violating that privacy, she stumbled upon a correspondence with a woman who was not her mother. And her immediate reaction was shock that gave way to outrage. Her dad was having an affair. How could this be? She was furious. And like a rubbernecker, unable to turn from the gore and wreckage of a bad car accident, she went on reading and digging. And she learned over the course of that awful afternoon in her dad's office that the affair was really only a secret to her. Not only did her mom know about the other woman, there was another man as well. The marriage itself had become a sham, Maybe for years it had been this way, and neither she nor any of her siblings had any idea. The emails mentioned that when the last of their brothers and sisters were grown, and when each of them had finally left the nest, then their parents would come forward with the truth, mom and dad have been living a lie. This young lady was grief-stricken. I didn't know her well. She was dating a close friend of mine, but I remember him telling us the story, asking us to pray for her. And I remember trying to imagine such a discovery and what must have been such a deep sense of betrayal that this construct one simply took for granted was a veneer, that it was hollow, an affectation perpetuated to avoid the messy calamity of admitting to its terrible illegitimacy. For Christians, this is a familiar story because Discipleship to Jesus isn't an intellectual worldview that one checks on a survey about their religious preferences. Discipleship to Jesus is an all-encompassing way of thinking and speaking and relating to the self and to others and to God. It is a comprehensive way of life that demands not some, but all of who we are and who we will be. So, naturally, not everyone who begins the race crosses the finish line. 
And sure, you have the explicit quitters, the deconstructionists and deconverted who either throw out God altogether in favor of agnosticism or atheism or who reinvent God in their own image and put their words in his mouth until they're bored with the charade of it all and give up on that too. But others, others stay together for the kids. They pretend as if nothing has changed when everything has. And they keep up appearances because the anticipated consequences of dropping the act are too worrisome to entertain. And this, this is the scary part. Some of us do this on purpose, knowingly. Some of us, though, haven't admitted to ourselves that really the marriage has been over for a long time. And we're kind of hoping God hasn't figured it out. We take a good long look in the mirror and forget our own face. And maybe we figure when everything is said and done, God will pass us because we said we believed certain things at some point or another. And really, we weren't even sure if we'd given up or to what degree. We just, maybe without even realizing it, stopped living as if we followed Jesus. We kept up some of the routines, maybe showed up to church, maybe even in communities and said the things we knew we were supposed to say, but there was nothing there, not really, not beneath the surface. And we think maybe that's okay because we were always told that we were saved by grace anyway, and when the time comes, we'll cash that grace in because we're tired or bored or disillusioned or life got busy. We had families or we got careers and life got hard or we're hurting or we're cynical or we feel like God didn't show up in one way or another. In other words, we're poor. There's a famine. We've been done wrong by others and we're angry and embittered. Or maybe in all the messy chaos of life, we sort of drifted apart. And really, we haven't much felt like we've experienced all that life to the fullest Jesus promised, and we don't remember how long. But please hear me when I say this. You will not experience the life of Jesus if you do not adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. That is what puts fruit on the fig tree, so to speak. Now, of course, I don't mean that if you read your Bible 10 minutes a day and say a prayer, you suddenly become a shining example of Christ-likeness what I mean is that Christ-likeness is not natural. You can't flip a switch that activates a heart for the orphan and the widow, God's heart, if it simply isn't there. If I were pastoring those parents pretending to remain happily married when they're anything but, I wouldn't tell them, just jump back in. Whatever, whatever rhythms and dynamics existed when you were happily married, just start doing that again as if nothing changed and it'll probably come back together. I would say, man, there is a lot of work to do. Let's begin to rebuild. Let's start somewhere, one foot in front of the other in what will be a messy, painful, long-term project. If you have drifted from Jesus... You probably can't lift the old closeness from the shelf where you left it, but you have to start somewhere. When you open the scriptures a little at a time, even for a few minutes in the morning, learning, growing, when you learn awkward and fumbling to pray as if you'd forgotten how to do it in the first place, to bring your heart and your mind to an awareness of God's presence 
that eventually becomes not just in the quiet moments, but throughout the chaos of your day. When you make space regularly to hear from God's spirit, to ask him what he has to say, even just a few minutes every day. When you make time to be alone in silence before God, when you learn to put your phone away, or when you train yourself to live in community with other men and women on the same journey, holding one another accountable, open to not just input, but to correction and accountability. When you discipline yourself more over time to structure the rhythms of your life to make these things happen with what we call a rule of life, rather than waiting for them to just organically fall into your life, which never happens. All of those things, little by little, over time is like watering a tree, enriching its soil, situating it before healthy sunlight. And slowly, over time, usually without you noticing right away, the tree begins to grow and unfold lush, healthy greens and viable fruit. This is why we return to this teaching from Jesus over and over and over again throughout the life of our church. When he said, I am the true vine, my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you're like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, my teaching, my way of life, ask whatever you want and it'll be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. And notice the way Jesus' words are so consistent. If you do not remain in me, you're like a branch that's thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. Yikes. And his magnum opus, his manifesto on life and kingdom of the God, uh, in the kingdom of God, Jesus warned, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. In other words, you can tell whether or not they follow Jesus by the way they conduct their lives. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit. Every bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and, again, thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. He's been saying the same thing all along. One more time from scholar Scott McKnight. He says, sensitive theologians are sometimes nervous about the way Jesus talks. And sometimes we need to exercise a special caution, but we need to trust Jesus said what he wanted. No one is saved by works, of course, but everyone is judged by works because works are the inevitable life of the one who surrenders to, trusts in, and follows Jesus. You can avoid these texts if you wish, but anyone who has spent much time in judgment texts in the Bible knows that the Bible teaches that our final destiny is determined by works. We may be saved by faith, but we are judged by works. Every judgment scene in the Bible is a judgment of works. Jesus always presents a beautiful and irresistible portrait of the kingdom. 
which is simultaneously a stark, hardcore portrait of authentic discipleship that is designed to convict the listener as they learn. It's a teaching tool and a clever one at that. It's almost like that I was a good teacher. So you're a disciple of Jesus. You're listening to your teacher and your master warned that authentic discipleship, it will be evident by examining someone's life. We love to say things like, oh, only God knows whether or not someone follows Jesus or not. Jesus taught explicitly. You'll be able to tell. Look at the way they conduct their lives. So you hear Jesus say these things, these warnings, horrifying warnings, that uh, if you examine one's life, fruitless trees will be cut down and thrown into the fire. And you're nodding and thinking, okay, okay, yeah, got it. And then you say, wait, does my life evidence my discipleship? And that's when I imagine Jesus, you know, giving the sly wink and saying, that's exactly the right question to ask my student. If you take the good, long, difficult look in the mirror, what do you see? Can you remember the identity that God spoke over you in your journey of discipleship? The person that you were called to be, do you remember who that is? Did you ever know? Can you see the scars and blemishes zigzagging up your neck and face, the damage done by your own failure, the agony of living by sin done against you? And in beholding both those things, your calling and the damage done to you by life in a broken world, are you content to turn from the mirror as if you saw neither of them? Or does that nagging fire still burn within, the still small voice calling you deeper still to be the man or woman that God has made you to be. And not for your sake only, but for the sake of the entire world, for your friends, your community, your family, your spouse, your children. Is it enough to pretend that you're still married when you aren't, to forget your own face? Let's pray and ask God's spirit to come and speak and bring more truth to us as we work to follow Jesus together as a family. Thanks for listening to Vance City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vance City financially at vancity.church/give.